0: The following talk is from St. Michael's Folwell, a gospel centered community for Folwell, Teddington, and beyond. Our passion is to see every life following Jesus. For more information, visit our website, stmichaelsfolwell.co.uk. And we're turning now to the part of the service where uh, we look at the Bible, and Ruth is uh, behind me. Oh, that was quick. Um, and Ruth's going to read to us 2 Timothy chapter 4 it's on page 1197 so turn to that and afterwards Ed is going to come and speak to us Ruth 2 Timothy chapter 4
1: beginning at verse 6 for I am already been poured out like a drink offering and the time for my departure is near I have fought the good fight I have finished the race I have kept the faith Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica, Crescens has gone to Galatia, and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Send tickets to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Catwis at Troas, and my strolls, especially the parchments. Alexander the metal worker did a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support. Everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me the strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory for ever and ever. Amen. And final greetings. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth, and I left Trophimus ill in Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Eubulus greets you, and so do Prudence, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. Amen. Thanks be to God for his holy word.
0: Wonderful, Ruth. Thank you so much. Good morning, all. Uh, Wonderful to see you. Do keep that open in front of you. I've got some handouts here, which I wonder if I could give to one or two down on the front rows, uh, just to to spread out. Thank you ever so much. That's fantastic. Uh, So that just gives a little outline of what we're going to be thinking about uh, together now as we look at this final part of the letter of 2 Timothy. Fantastic. Uh, Hopefully they're making their way out towards you. You've got 2 Timothy open on page 1197. Uh, Let me lead us in prayer as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we we thank you so much that you are a God who speaks to us by your spirit through your word. Lord, please, this morning, give us ears to hear and hearts and wills that long to obey for your honour and glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, over the past few weeks, we've been looking at this letter of uh, 2 Timothy, and why? Why spend time in the letter of 2 Timothy? Why have we done this? Why have we given over so much time to it? And a couple of reasons. Uh, the first is perhaps the most important one that really took me to this letter, and that is just a recognition uh, that it is very easy to go wrong in ministry in churches, in denominations. It is very easy to veer off course. Uh, It is very easy to lose confidence in the gospel or to seek to change it or or undermine it. Uh, False teaching is a very real thing and a very big problem where it's found. And Paul is very aware of this. He's writing this letter, uh, you will well know uh, by now, to Timothy. Uh, he's near the end of his life, as we're going to see today. And he's really thinking about succession planning, uh, the changing of the guard. It's the sort of Alcaraz taking on from Dokovitch-type moments. And uh, he tells Timothy way back in chapter. 1 Verse 14 to guard the good deposit, to guard the beautiful gospel. And uh, we need to hear this message to guard the gospel today, uh, as Christians have needed to hear this throughout the last 2,000 years, because these dangers are still very much around today. And uh, I have to say, uh, the reality is there are real challenges are facing our own denomination at this time, uh, the Church of England. There is, uh, to my mind, a massive loss of confidence in the gospel uh, amongst many within our denomination. Uh, In many places, we no longer see a, a trust and a use of God's word. And there is a real danger of veering into false teaching. And it's very real. And we shouldn't be surprised by this. And it's really important for us to spend some time hearing what God's Word has to say about these sort of dangers uh, so that we don't become part of the problem, so that we can stay faithful, that we can guard the good deposit, and so we can know how to handle the challenges that we face. Uh, we're to be preaching the word in season and out of season uh, with gentleness, with careful instruction, with love, with grace, and with faithfulness. And that's been one of the big reasons why I've found it so significant and important personally to spend time here in 2 Timothy. Uh, The second reason is... um, I just think the life of the Apostle Paul is an extraordinary life. Uh, he is the most, one of the most remarkable uh, people in all history. And uh, this letter is a really intimate picture of the Apostle Paul's uh, life. And particularly we get that in these final few verses uh, of this letter. And uh, somebody who just was sold out for the Lord and a great example for us uh, to follow. And I hope we'll see a little bit of that uh, this morning as well. So we've got two headings we're going to be thinking about this morning. Uh, the first, longing for that day. The second, living in this one. Longing for that day, living in this one. So first, longing for that day. Have a look at verse 6 uh, with me. Let me read from verse 6. Paul writes this, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. That day. Day. That is actually a really significant phrase uh, in the whole New Testament, and it refers to a day in the future when Jesus will return and he will return as judge, as judge of all, and he will fully and finally bring in the new creation. Uh, we read in Hebrews uh, chapter 9, verse uh, 27, which I think is going to come up uh, hopefully on the screen. Let's see here about uh, a day to come is not coming up on the screen. Let me read to you uh, Hebrews chapter 9 uh, verse 27 so we can uh, see what it says about that day. Hebrews 9 verse 27 says this People are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, Uh, a sobering truth. Uh, We die once, and after that, there will be that day where we face judgment. But we don't just have to take uh, the word of Hebrews for it. Jesus spoke about that day over 12 times in his ministry. Uh, It's a day of judgment, Jesus says, as we've just been hearing there from Hebrews. Uh, But it's also a day of reward. Jesus spoke about it as a day where Christians receive their reward, and Timothy speaks of that, we'll see in a second as well. Jesus also speaks about that day as being a day of reunion, of coming together. Uh, he described that in the Lord's, where he's he sort of bring in the Lord's Supper. He's saying we will be together, we will be reunited on that day. So Jesus spoke about that day a lot, And Christians on that day, as we uh, see here specifically from Paul, is saying that they will receive a great reward described as, verse 8, a crown of righteousness. A crown of righteousness. Now, this image is obviously from the sporting world. Um, Rather than receiving a sort of a big shield or a cup, as they do at Wimbledon, or a medal as they do in the Olympics, uh, back then in athletic competition they would receive a a, a crown a sort of a a wreath uh, to put on their heads that was the mark of victory and paul is saying for the christian it's like you receive a crown of righteousness now what is that meaning what does that actually uh, say well i think it's speaking about the righteousness that every christian already has in jesus christ And it's as though that righteousness will be fully and finally declared on that day. All the promises we have in the gospel fulfilled. We know what it means to be fully forgiven. We will be fully human, fully relating perfectly with God. And uh, this declaration that we receive on that day is in real contrast to... The judgment of a human court that Paul is expecting to face himself. Uh, Paul is in prison in Rome. He is going through trial. Uh, He's already had a first defense. He's expecting to have to defend himself again. And he's expecting to be condemned by the emperor's court. And one of the things Paul is saying here is, do you know what, there is going to be a court that is going to declare a righteousness, a great reversal that uh, is in stark contrast to what any human court might declare of me. And Paul is implying here, and you know whose declaration I much more value? It's the declaration of God rather than of a human court. Uh, this is what Paul longed for. And it's actually what all Christians long for, this moment of receiving that Declaration, that declaration of righteousness from God himself. is something, if you're a Christian, you will be longing for. Okay, might not be perfectly longing for it. Sometimes it might feel rather dimly. But it is that moment of arrival, that moment of completion, that moment of meeting God face to face, that moment of being renewed, restored, fully, to receive the well-done, good and faithful servant. Isn't that something that you long for? I don't know what you make of the film Love Actually. Uh, I've got a few problems with the film Love Actually. I don't massively like the film Love Actually, but I do think that it gets one thing spot on, and that is the scene right at the end of uh, the pictures of the arrival gate at uh, wherever it was, Heathrow Airport, of people meeting one another. I love that. I love those pictures, all the joy of reunions that are taking place. And um, I, I think that just gives us a little picture, just a little picture, a little taste of what that day will be like for a Christian, of the joy of reunion of knowing God seeing God face to face and it's a longing for that day and actually the word longing for there in verse 8 literally means a a love for that day it's a longing for, a love for that day that actually shapes uh, the way we understand verses 6 and 7 here so let me just read from verse 6 again and uh, see what Paul is saying. He says this, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. Uh, So here's Paul. He's saying of himself, he's being poured out like a drink offering. Now, what was a drink offering? Back in Old Testament times, the drink offering was a kind of like wine or oil that would be poured out to accompany a sacrifice. And... um, Uh, That that seems to be what Paul is saying is an appropriate picture for himself. There is a sense in which he is being poured out. His life is being poured out. And there's a sense of cost there. Uh, Here is the Apostle Paul. He has experienced huge cost for being a Christian. Uh, Here he is in prison. But he's been pouring out his life for the sake of this truth of an even greater sacrifice that of Jesus Christ Uh, he's been poured out and the time for his departure is near Uh, it's a a lovely way of describing actually coming to the end of his life here on earth Uh, the sort of image of a boat whose ropes are being loosened from its moorings and is setting off to a new place a new shore. So Paul's very aware that he's paying the cost. He's paying the cost with his own life. His life is coming to an end. And you almost get a sense of relief in verse 7 of where he's got to, of what he's able to say at this point in his life. Verse 7, he says this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith, fought the good fight, finished the race. Both those terms are actually, to be understood, more as sort of athletic images, uh, not sort of military ones. Uh, There's a sense of sort of hard work, of struggle, of pain there. But it's all worth it for the crown. He has kept the faith. In other words, he has remained faithful And you get that sense of relief that Paul has, that he's kept going almost to the end. It reminded me of um, something I read a few years ago that struck me massively. On my way to heaven, facing death with Christ, by uh, a chap called Mark Ashton. Uh, He was a vicar in a church in Cambridge for many years, and he was diagnosed uh, back in about 2008 with gallbladder cancer. And over the next uh, 15 months, Uh, knew for certain that he was going to die. And uh, he wrote this just before his death, uh, explaining uh, the experience of it and how he was approaching it. And it's always uh, really struck me. And uh, I think it captures something of what Paul is saying here. When he says this, you might think it's a slightly unusual way to look at things. I was so surprised when I read this uh, the first time. But I think it captures something of the Apostle Paul here. He said this, As the distance between me and the finishing line decreases, I am encouraged to believe more strongly that I will make it. I know it is God's work and not mine that will get me there, but it is still reassuring to know that the time is short and the opportunity to fall into gross sin is diminishing. I have less and less chance to betray our calling in some way, and I am comforted by that thought. I've always been aware of the huge depth of depravity of my own heart and the threat that poses to me every day. Now there are many fewer days left to face that threat than I thought. It's quite a way to think about it. He was very conscious of the reality of sin in his own life and he was delighted that By that point where he was facing his death, he had managed to keep going. He had kept faithful to Christ. Just as Paul was saying there, fought the good fight, finished the race, have kept the faith. Uh, It's a helpful reminder also that what Paul is writing here, what Mark Ashton was writing there, is not about being sinlessly perfect. It's not a declaration that Paul has never got anything wrong. If you know anything about Paul's life, he got some big things wrong. He was a persecutor of Christians. He struggled with sin. If you read Romans 7, you can hear about his struggle with sin. Uh, But it is about faithfulness. That's what Paul is declaring here. Keeping going, staying loyal to Christ, keeping short accounts with him, knowing his forgiveness day by day, living a life of repentance and faith. And in doing that, he gave it his all. He left, as it were, everything out on the pitch. And I guess it's easy, it is easy in the Christian life to live kind of half-heartedly, to sort of go through the motions, to sort of do the minimum of what it might mean to be a Christian, uh, to see what we can get away with. But wouldn't that be such a shame if that was our declaration as we came to our deaths, our departure? Wouldn't we all much rather be able to echo these words of the Apostle Paul when we come to the end of our lives? For this to be our testimony. To be able to say, look, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I have kept trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that be a wonderful testimony to be able to say as our life draws to an end, whenever that might be? And I think the key to cultivating that, to to enabling that in our life, is to cultivate a love for, a longing for, that day, that day where we meet Jesus face to face, that day where we receive the crown of righteousness, to long for that day. And by longing for that day, that will teach us how to live in this one. And I think that's the second thing we see here in chapter 4, in these verses from 9 to 22. And uh, We see here a great insight into Paul's life and what it means to live in this one. Paul wasn't so heavenly minded that he was of no earthly use. In fact, that day in the future gave him the fuel he needed to live in this one. And I love this sort of final section. I love these final sections in uh, Paul's letters. Uh, they might seem slightly incidental. I mean, they're just a whole list of names and all the rest of it. Uh, but I love them because it's, like, it's a bit like when the cameras keep rolling on a politician or a sports person or whatever. And the main event is done, but the cameras keep rolling. You just get a little glimpse into people's real personalities. A little behind-the-scenes look, like a fly-on-the-wall documentary. And I think this gives us a wonderful insight into Paul's life and his relationships. And there's loads that we can learn from it. We see what it meant for Paul to prepare well to keep fighting the fight and finishing the race. Uh, and we see it in a number of different areas. And we'll spend most, you'll see it on your handout, uh, we'll see it as we think about living with desertion, uh, living strategically, practically in partnership for God's glory. We'll spend most of our time uh, on the first one of those with desertion. Because it's actually a, a surprisingly big theme here in Paul's life. Uh, so how did Paul live with desertion? Uh, do you see here? I don't know if you picked this up as we read through this. Uh, three big desertions that Paul faced as he neared the end of his life. One was from Demas, uh, verse ten. Uh, Demas, because he loved the world, has deserted me, and has gone to Thessalonica. Uh, this this was a bit of a tragedy. Uh, Demas, he had worked really closely with the Apostle Paul. We read about this in Colossians 4.14 and in Philemon as well. But it seemed that he loved the world more than he loved, longed for that day. And so when push came to shove, when there was a cost to be paid, it looks like Demas deserted Paul and the gospel. It's possible that that was also true for Crescens and Titus, although we don't know that for certain. So first, there's Demas's desertion. Second, there's quite a different type of desertion from Alexander the metalworker, verse 14. I mean, Alexander the metalworker, he just sounds a little bit threatening, doesn't he? And uh, here is someone who clearly did cause real harm uh, in verse 14 there. Uh, Alexander the metalworker worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. And then third, uh, there was desertion that he faced at his defense. Paul had this first trial. We don't know exactly what type of trial that was before the Roman authorities, but it seemed to be the case that no one showed up. There he was, being put on trial and you can imagine the scene just no one turned up in his defense no one turned up in the court and uh, these were christians who should have turned up who were still professing christ but probably they were just too scared to do so Now, what do we learn? What do we learn from these desertions that Paul faced? I think there are a number of things that are really helpful for us to learn. I think the first thing we need to do is to take note of what happened to Demas. Take note of what happened to Demas. It is a great tragedy that too many Christians start off strong in faith. But love of the world, whether that's love for prosperity or popularity or comfort, or when the cost just becomes too high, all that takes over. And a love of the world sort of shrinks a love for that day and for the Lord. And we need to take note that that can happen. Demas was one of Paul's right-hand men. And he loved the world. He drifted away. Uh, Revelation chapter 2 verse 4 is one of the letters written to the church of Ephesus. This letter of 2 Timothy was going to the church in Ephesus. And uh, we read this, uh, spoken of the church of Ephesus. Yet I hold this, God says, against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You have forsaken the love you have at first. And that is a danger. That is a danger for all Christians. We can forsake the love we had at first. And if we get any sense of that, that perhaps our love for the world is growing and correspondingly our love for the Lord is diminishing, we need to take note of that and to change that. That's the first thing we can learn from these desertions. Second, to trust God's judgment on those who harm us. Uh, I think uh, verse 14 shows us that. The Lord will repay Alexander the metal worker for what he has done. Trust God's judgment to those who harm us. Uh, we don't need to take vengeance into our own hands. We don't need to be vigilantes. Uh, we're to trust God's judgment on those who harm us. But let's not be naive either. Verse 15 says we should be on our guard against people like Alexander, the metal worker. Uh, we're to take action uh, if people are to threaten. Uh, that's next thing we learn. And finally, I think verse 16 is really helpful. Uh, for those times when Christians, fellow Christians, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, let us down, which inevitably will happen. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where... Um, uh, Christians just, brothers and sisters, people who we would hope would step up in a particular moment just didn't manage to do so. Uh, maybe it was innocently made, innocently done. Maybe it was um, just couldn't quite manage it. Uh, maybe the cost was too high. Uh, maybe there was a situation where you had a need and uh, people didn't step up in that moment. And it's very easy in that moment to get Quite angry. uh, And perhaps hold a grudge. But do you see how Paul reflected on it? Uh, When everyone, no one turned up at his trial, but verse 16, what did he say? See at the end there. May it not be held against them. May it not be held against them. I love that. In other words, Lord, forgive them. And I don't want to hold it against them. I want to show grace in that. So to show grace to those who let us down, because we're all going to let each other down in one way or another. That's just going to happen, because we're flawed people. And uh, that's not an excuse to do so. If we let others down, we want to say sorry and acknowledge it. But if we've been let down ourselves, let's forgive. Let's show grace. And also know this, crucially know this, that the Lord will never let us down. The Lord will never let us down. Verse 17, Paul says this, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it, and I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. That's a wonderful declaration, isn't it? In any situation, however bad it gets, however tough it is, the Lord will be with us. He will never let us down. He will always be working out his purposes, as I think we're seeing here, uh, through Paul's life. And that will be true for us. The Lord will never let us down. He is utterly faithful, utterly faithful. Dependable. We can trust him. So that's the main thing uh, for us to be thinking about, I think, from living with desertion. Very quickly, as, as we wrap up, let's just look at these other four things that we can learn as we get this window into Paul's life. And uh, one of the things we see here is uh, the strategic way in which Paul's thinking uh, this is quite a change of gear, but it is fascinating to see. Do you notice it? In verse 9, uh, he says to Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly. It's worth noting, Paul's not expecting to die tomorrow. Uh, he's expecting to do so at some point in the coming weeks and months. But he's saying to Timothy, come to me quickly. Then he says in verse 11, um, get Mark to come here. By the way, Mark is a person that Paul fell out with um, uh, you can read about that back in Acts 15, but clearly there's been a reconciliation. Clearly, Paul is living out what he means by not holding things against people, which is lovely to see. And then verse 12, he is sending uh, Tychicus to Ephesus. What's going on here? All this sort of coming and going—Timothy, Mark coming in, sending out Tychicus. What's all that about? Well, I think what it's about is even though Paul is sort of confined in this prison cell, even though his sort of, what he can see must be so small, he still has a massive vision for the work of the Lord. And he's still thinking about how can he get the gospel out to the world that he knows. And he's thinking strategically and planning carefully here. Uh, He's gathering his key leaders, Timothy And Mark, Uh, Luke is already there. And he's clearly wanting to gather them so that he can send them out. Again, that's why he's writing this letter of 2 Timothy. He's thinking strategically. And I think that's a great encouragement to us as churches to keep thinking strategically. For us as people, as Christians, to think strategically. How can we live for the Lord? How can we enable the gospel to best go out to Fullwell, Tennington and beyond? Just one little example of that for us as a church at the moment, is uh, to, to be thinking strategically about our service times. Uh, you might well have uh, received a letter or seen the letter through the bulletin uh, this week, uh, inviting a, a consultation over our service times for the afternoon and evening. Uh, currently we have a 4 o'clock service and a 6.30 service, and we're just wanting to think through whether or not uh, there is an opportunity to bring them together into a 5.15 service, whether that will, uh, the whole will be even stronger than the parts, uh, the sum of the parts. Uh, and we're just wanting to think that through at the moment, because it's good to be thinking through strategically. Uh, what is the best way to grow disciples, and to grow one another in Christ, and to reach out to four world Tennington and beyond? Uh, and how can we be doing that as best as we can? And thinking through these service times is one way we can think strategically about that. Just one example uh, that we're wanting to think about as a church. So it's striking to see uh, here is Paul. He uh, believes in strategy very swiftly. Uh, We also see he is someone concerned about the practicalities of life. Uh, Some lovely details here. Verse 13, he says, When you come to Timothy, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Nothing wrong. He's a, he's a, this is a guy who is on fire for the Lord, yet also he's able to think, practically, it's going to be cold in winter, and he's got a lovely cloak that might keep him warm, and he's asking for it. That's good to think. We need to meet one another's, our own practical needs. And I love the way also he's concerned for his scrolls and parchments. Here is someone who's facing death, and yet he still wants to keep learning. That's quite striking, isn't it? He still wants that, presumably in these scrolls were parts of Scripture. Um, Most experts seem to think uh, some of the Gospels would have been part of them. And he he wants to grow, he wants to continue to, to learn about the Lord. I love that detail. So he's thinking practically. He's thinking in partnership as well. Sometimes we think that Paul was this sort of one-man band. Not a bit of it. Did you know, uh, again, scholars have added up all the different names in all of Paul's letters and in the book of Acts of different people Paul worked with that are named. And it comes up to about 100 people. 100 people that Paul actively in his ministry was working with. Uh, because he was a team player. And ministry must be a team thing. We need one another in ministry. And finally, it is all for God's glory. There's not a hint of self-pity, I don't think, in this letter. Uh, rather, I think it reaches a climax there in verse 18, where Paul says, to him, to God, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, Paul wants everything that he's about, all his ministry, to be bring glory to God. That is his chief concern. He wants to honour him. He wants to lift him high. He wants to point people to a God of grace, a God of love. And not to himself. Which is why I think he ends there. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. That is what he longs for. He longs for people to know God, to know the Lord, and to know his grace. That's his longing. That is our longing too. Uh, longing for that day, living in this one. Uh, that is uh, Paul's encouragement uh, to us. And uh, let's, let's take a moment now as we come to an end, just to... to take a bit of a chance to, to think about that, to think about that day in the future and what impact that has on upon our lives now. Uh, we're going to have a bit, a bit of quiet now um, and then we're going to be singing a couple of songs that really give us a chance to respond to what we've been hearing and uh, to, to give our lives uh, to the Lord. The prayer team will come up uh, in a few moments when we start singing and uh, be over to the left and a chance... Uh, If you want to uh, pray with someone, that is a great way to do it. Um, But also, as we sing together, it's a great chance to respond. But let's just take a moment of quiet to uh, allow what we've been hearing to sit in us. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Father, we... We have no, many, no, no idea how many years, months we have uh, ahead of us. Uh, it might be a few, it might be many. But Lord, we, we long that this will be our testimony. That we might be people who fight the good fight, who finish the race, who keep the faith, Lord, help us to keep trusting in you, to keep living for you, not half heartedly, but with our whole lives, giving all that we have to you, to the cause of your glory, to the honor of your name. Lord, give us that broad perspective that Paul so clearly had, uh, that perspective that had that day in mind that great day of reunion with you. Lord, might that day be a very real thought in our hearts, in our minds. And may we live for it with all that we have. For your honour, we pray. Amen.